9, 12, 10, 28, 2, 23. This is Deep State Radio, coming to you direct from our super-secret studio in the third sub-basement of the Ministry of SNARK in Washington, D.C., and from other undisclosed locations across America and around the world. Hello, and welcome to the latest episode of Deep State Radio, your back-to-school episode of Deep State Radio. It's just past Labor Day. Uh, I am David Rothkopf. I'm your host. I'm here in New York City, and I am joined from our nation's capital uh, by Corey Shockey, who has returned to the nation's capital. <laughs> Hi, Corey. Hello, David. And Rosa Brooks, who never left the nation's capital or hasn't recently left it. Uh, Hi, Rosa. How are you? That's what you think, David. Yeah, no, it's true. I actually, I know that you have been moving around a lot. There's really Uh, great light in Rosa's silo. It is. I have to say, the simulated sunlight filter you got going, Rosa, is just fabulous. Not only am I looking at a window, but my employer, Georgetown University Law Center, sent me a package containing something called a ring of beauty, which I, I have my ring of beauty on. Well, also using also using the ring of beauty is Ed Luce. Um, <laughs> One second to start to work. <laughs> it's working extremely well. This is my ring of beauty. It doesn't look so great if you kind of if you go like this. It doesn't look as good. It's not as beautiful, but it's I, everything you do, Rosa, is beautiful. Hi, Ed. Welcome. Hi. How are you, David? <clears throat> and I think I don't know if David Sanger still in Vermont or based on this, he's got a backdrop of Vermont. Where are you, David Sanger? I'm actually, I'm, I'm in Vermont, but I wasn't as, um, as courageous as Ed and Corey and Rosa to actually return to the swamp yet. I, I can't quite bring myself to do it, but I'm, I'm working my way up to it. You have if, a, they tell well, you me, have, if they tell me it's okay, I'll, I'll come back. You, come well, back you, gotta, you have a background of actual beauty. So yeah. I would stay there if I was you. Well, you guys all have foreground of beauty. Um, in any event, uh, David, you got to get down. There's 56 days before the election, uh, I hear, in the United States. That's something. Um, and I think the dominant news story over the past few days um, has been triggered by a story that a friend of several of ours, Jeffrey Goldberg, ran in the Atlantic Monthly. Um, in which uh, he attributed to several senior officials um, uh, reports that the president spoke disparagingly of um, our war dead as suckers and losers. This was subsequently confirmed multiple times by multiple media sources um, and uh, seems to have stung the president and those around him more than most such stories. Why do you think that is, Corey? Uh, Because the president likes to think of himself as uh, his time at a a reform school military academy being the equivalent of having led the Normandy invasion. Um, And I also think it's part (laughs) of a broader and actually really dangerous attempt by the president and the people around him to corrode the chain of military command and isolate the leadership 
in order to have a personal loyalty with the troops that would supersede the good order and discipline that we have relied on in our military. So um, I, I think what the administration's doing is actually really dangerous. And the story highlighted the way that, um, uh, that they are vulnerable because most people who spend much time in the military actually grow are trained and educated to uh, think in strategic ways that the administration doesn't. And so what you can see in some limited polling that has been done is a gap between people who are in the military as a career of service, who tend to be, um, even if they are registered Republicans, they tend to have views that are very much establishment views uh, on national security issues, and people who are recruits uh, in for two years who tend to have a stronger appreciation for the president's policies, that kind of gung-ho, go-it-alone, America-first kind of stuff. And even though the, the polling is limited, I think it's encouraging the president to believe that, as Susan Glasser put it, um, in, at first, the president wanted to be surrounded by generals, right, to look like he was in charge of them. And now what he wants is actually to be surrounded by captains, people who won't think strategically, who will say, yep, boss, I'll get it done for you. And I think that is the attitude of Captain Pompeo and Captain Esper and some others in the administration. The Listen last the thing, I, may I say Go one on. last thing? which is uh, my sympathies go out to the Kelly family because I can't even imagine how awful it would be to have your family's private grief of having lost a son in combat litigated in the glare of uh, <coughs> national political light. Um, this has to be terrible for them. Um, and so I would encourage people who are engaged in the argument about civil-military relations which, as you know, I think is hugely important, and we're in a dangerous place, um, not to drag the Kelly family into having to litigate their sorrow in public. Almost never happens, but I don't agree with Corey on that. I agree with her on almost everything on civil-military relations, uh, David, but uh, John Kelly... Um, is not just a former general. He is somebody who chose to be the head of the Department of Homeland Security. He chose to be the White House Chief of Staff. He entered the world of politics. And he now sits on boards and profits from the positions that he had when he chose to be in politics. And so for him to um, uh, have important insights on this thing that pertains to the world, uh, I think the defense that, well, I don't think it's appropriate for a military officer to talk about this doesn't no, David, hold that's water. not what I'm saying. I'm not saying it's not appropriate for veterans who took political appointments. I agree with you on that. But this is a family grief of tremendous proportions. To expect that not to weigh in the balance I think is an unkindness to people grieving the loss of a child still. No, no, no question. No question about that. But I do think he has a responsibility here. David, what do you think? 
So the the debate that is underway and has been for a year and a half or two years among the military officers is whether their old tradition that we don't take up the private conversations that advisors have had with the president outweighs their responsibility at a key moment in the election to describe what they heard and saw. And interestingly, the only one who's actually described what he heard and saw in any great detail in, in, inside who would have you know, some credibility on these issues is John Bolton, right, in his own, in his own memoir. But um, General Mattis uh, has not spoken out other than to issue a general statement back in June or so when he said that uh, he believed that the president was a danger to the Constitution. Um, Kelly has said, uh, General Kelly has said nothing uh, so far about the uh, Atlantic story. Um, H.R. McMaster, the, uh, Bolton's predecessor, has not spoken publicly uh, on that story as well. And the president's kind of exploited this because he said um, the Atlantic had anonymous sources, which didn't surprise me. Uh, and then they've had a series of people come out on the record to say, we haven't heard anything quite like this. Now, that would be credible in an administration that didn't have such a long record of being deceiving on and off the record, right? Uh, but they do. Uh, but in this case, I think the question is, where, where is the higher duty? And we're still seeing that a lot of the people who were around the president and then fired by the president have determined that their higher duty is to the tradition of staying silent about the conversations. I wanted to get to um, Corey's uh, earlier point, which I think was exactly right, about the transition in the way the president has viewed the generals. When I interviewed him with Maggie Haberman when he was a candidate, I asked him why it was that so many of his advisors he surrounded himself with were generals. And, um, and, and otherwise were in the military. And the answer he gave me was, I said, you know, you could have surrounded them with diplomats and, you know, indicated that you were interested in diplomatic solutions. And the answer he offered was um, having generals around um, makes it clear that you're interested in being tough and that America's problem in the Obama era and previously was we didn't convey enough sense of toughness. So he liked the imagery of having all these people with stars on their shoulders. Um, maybe uh, and the psychologist will have to go play with this. It goes back to his time in that military school that Corey re, uh, referred to. Uh, maybe it just goes from his, it emerges from his TV sense. What happened over time was that he grew disenchanted with the generals. And that led to this remarkable set of tweets over the weekend where he charged his own military officers with simply seeking to pursue endless wars so they could sell more military gear or keep the defense industrial complex alive. Well, who has defended the defense industrial complex more than Donald Trump, the man who said uh, that he would forgive the Saudis for the killing of Khashoggi because they buy so many um, American weapons? So uh, the, the level of uh, contradiction here, even by Trumpian standards, is pretty high. Rosa, what do you think? Not a whole lot more to add. I mean, um, 
do I find it entirely plausible that Trump said exactly what Jeffrey Goldberg's anonymous sources report that he said? Yes, of course. I mean, it's completely consistent with his other comments uh, about John McCain, um, about uh, other other people, anyone who has suffered a misfortune, sooner or later, Trump calls them a loser. Um, you know, if somebody got struck by lightning, Trump would probably say, well, that's because you're such a sucker and a loser. I mean, that's, that's his style. That's his MO. Um, I, you know, I do think it, it, it does, it creates really hard issues, issues that I never thought we would have to even be thinking about in this country in terms of civil military relations. Because I think, you know, David has gotten it exactly right that there's there's this incredibly important tradition of the military staying out of politics um, and being nonpartisan, um, and that 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 trend that tradition matters hugely. You know, at the same time, who would have ever expected a Donald Trump? You know, and and when you get a kind of unremitting assaults on the rule of law and on U.S. democratic processes and constitutional structures, you know. Clearly, in theory, we all we all say, and we all say this all the time. We say, "Oh, you know, military officers take an oath to the Constitution, not to the President of the United States." And we all clearly agree, in theory, that that fealty to the U.S. Constitution, you know, and and the Republic for which it stands, right, is is one that supersedes allegiance to a president, to a party, etc. I think. I think. It's exceptionally rare for any military officer to actually face a conflict. It happens, but it's rare. And we're getting now sort of over and over and over again a set of situations, statements, hypothetical possible future situations that, that really squarely confront military leaders with a possible clash between those different loyalties. And, and I don't think there is an easy answer to it. You know, I really don't. Um, um, <laughs> And it's a, it's a scary conversation to even be having. Ed, this has been a very measured, thoughtful conversation, as you would expect, from three measured, thoughtful people like your colleagues here. And yet, what the president is alleged to have said and has been credibly confirmed by five different media outlets isn't something that is, you know, merely something you can relate to intellectually. It's repugnant. It's disgusting. And it's not just disgusting. He is the commander-in-chief. He's running for another four years as commander-in-chief. He seems to believe that if you die in battle, you are a loser. If you are a, 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 a prisoner of war, you are a loser. If you do not succeed in your mission, you are a loser. If you go to Vietnam and you do not get paid, you are a sucker. Um, how is it conceivable that somebody who expresses these views can even be considered as a commander-in-chief? Uh, and is that disconnect the reason this is potentially so damaging? Not, not just all those things, but if you get into a uniform in the first place, you're a loser. Why would you want to do that, um, he, he said. Um, uh, so um, this, before these um, latest Jeff, Jeff Goldberg revelations, um, unsurprising yet shocking revelations. There's, there's been quite a lot of um, indications that Trump's support amongst active duty military um, has been going down. Um, there was a Military Times poll late last year, I think, that showed that half of active duty personnel were unhappy with Trump and didn't trust Trump. 
Um, so I think, you know, the, 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 the message that he doesn't respect people who serve, that they're suckers, um, has been plain long before these words were sort of quoted um, in the Atlantic piece. It's been plain since before he was elected president in the comments he made about John McCain. Um, and um, it was plain from his bone spurs um, pretext for not serving himself, for, for not taking the draft for Vietnam. Um, the question you've asked in relation to his attitude towards the military, you could ask in, in relation uh, uh, to, to, of his attitude towards women, um, uh, towards disabled people, um, towards um, uh, those who are needy and marginalized and need help. Um, you can, you can, we can have this same discussion in terms of the measure of moral repugnance on any number of fronts, and we'll still come to the sort of same rhetorical question, why the hell isn't he punished more by public sentiment um, um, for this? And that gets into the grand existential you know, um, question, what, what, what does Trump represent? And, you know, I think, I think you have to continue to go back to the depth, the depth of alienation and hatred that are uh, a large section of America feel for normal politics and for Washington and for this inverted commas establishment um, and how Trump as the troller in chief um, manages to retain their support no matter how morally repugnant he behaves. And in some, case, some cases precisely because he's morally re repugnant because that triggers us and conversations like this. Um, so I don't, you know, I don't have a sort of deeper answer as to how he gets away with this other than to, to say, uh, hopefully there's only 56 more days of getting away with it. Can, can I jump in on that just to, just to be a fancy academic and say that I, I actually think part of the problem is, a, is an epistemological problem? You know, I, I really do in the sense that that's a, that's a super, that's the fancy pretentious way to say that um, people in America now occupy different knowledge universes and different, have different ideas of what it means to know something and how you know the things that you know and what you need to prove or disprove the things that you know. I, I do think that it's, it's not simply that Trump supporters seeing the full spectrum of information and news that we see are saying, screw you elites, I, I prefer to stick with Trump, whatever he does, I think it's, it's, it's also just that they, many of them, not all of them, um, but many of them are, are in this constant bubble of disinformation, you know, um, disinformation that not only presents them with an alternative set, alternative facts, as Kellyanne Conway once, once famously put it, um, but that is also, uh, it's kind of a, a machine to reject any external infusions of information. And obviously we all have, you know, cognitive confirmation bias. We all, none of us like hearing stuff that contradicts our views and we prefer to screen it out, but they actually have kind of a machine that does exactly that by, by essentially saying, by definition, any negative information about Donald Trump is a lie. It's just been made up. Um, and whatever bad thing the, the left, the globalists, the media elites, et cetera, are saying about Donald Trump, anything they're saying about Trump that's bad is actually what they're doing. 
themselves and they're trying to pretend he's doing it, you know, and that creates a sort of much deeper kind of problem because you're no longer operating in the realm of, hey, let's talk about the facts, make up your mind based on these facts, people, that you have a kind of epistemological universe that is completely impervious to new information because it's already developed this mechanism for just spitting it back out you know, in a sort of funhouse mirror way where it turns back on the source of the information. And I don't know what we do about that. I think that's a generational problem at this point. Well, maybe a generational problem, but it comes back, Corey, to what we started talking about at the beginning, because if there is this kind of, and I like to pick up on fancy terms Rosie uses to make me sound fancy, you know, this kind of epistemological divide out there, the one side that is embracing the non-science, non-history, non-math, non-reality side of this depends more critically than the other, which actually has reality to back it up, on validation, on validators. Now, Rosa made reference to the Kellyanne Conways and the others who sort of go out and, you know, Sarah Huckabee's and they say, this is a lie, this is a lie, this is a lie. But the silence of people who are in positions of power who should be speaking out in the event of this. And another one who comes up is Secretary of Defense Esper, who's known, you know, within the Beltway to some as a Secretary Yesper, because he says yes to everything for Trump and is abused by Trump, um, shows this kind of loyalty of not calling him out. And of course, in t- classic Trumpian fashion, in the past 24 hours, we've got the White House floating rumors about the replacement of Esper, like presidents over him. Um, but, but the point is, you can't have these two universes if you don't have some credible people validating the incredible ideas, right? Isn't that another reason that people ought to speak out? Uh, so yes, it would be really nice if, for example, Republicans in Congress would more frequently do what Representative Cheney has done and make clear where they disagree with the president on substantive issues or on the way he's behaving. That would be a beautiful thing. Um, and I agree with you that it is not being done. And I do think Republican elected officials have a lot to answer for, for what they have enabled in the Trump administration. But I would make a difference between uh, Congress, whose job it is to provide checks and balances in the American political system, and cabinet members in an administration who have a responsibility if they take those jobs to try and carry out the elected guy's policies. I, I feel uncomfortable about trying to encourage people who are political appointees from working against the elected president that they are committed to serve. So that, Esper, that Secretary Esper is trying to navigate between what the president has a right to do, like withdraw troops from Europe, and... Uh, try and make it a sensible strategic choice, which I don't, I think it's a bad policy, but he didn't do half badly at trying to say, if we have to do this, here is a way to do it that minimizes the damage and gives us other advantages. 
But of course, the president 20 minutes later undercut that by making clear that the strategic rationale had carried no weight with him. So um, uh, it has to be crummy to be a cabinet official in this administration um, because the president expects fealty but provides no loyalty himself in return. It reminds me of that great um, guidance. Uh, who was it from? Mm, give me a minute, I'll remember. But the great guidance that if a boss asks you for loyalty, you ought to take a stand on your integrity. And if a boss asks you for integrity, that's the boss to give your loyalty to. Yeah, there's a, I, I can give you another quote while you're searching for whoever came for that one. And that was... Abraham Harriman. It's John say, Boyd, by the way. Okay. Well, Abraham Harriman used to say that the only way to ensure that your team is loyal to you is to be loyal to them first. Um, and you know, it's another dimension of that. David, you look like you wish to say something here. The, the only thing I was going to say was just picking up on Corey's um, description of uh, the effort to go find a strategy here, um, which Esper and others have struggled with because they go out, they're sent out and you have to pity these characters for some, for a moment because they're sent out to tell the allies, Oh, we're committed to your defense. Oh, we're committed to Afghanistan. Oh, we're committed to NATO and so forth. They um, give them all of these documents that come out of the administration, like the national security strategy that back that up. And then the president says or tweets something that makes it, you know, enormously clear that he either hasn't read it or hasn't read it and doesn't really care about it or that it isn't really the the strategy. And um, so that's part, I think, of what's going on in the background as the general officers and uh, the troops go try to sort out their instinctive backing for President Trump, which four years ago, was based on his assurance that he would increase the military budget. And they were willing to sort of forgive almost everything else in return for making sure they had constantly increasing budgets. Never once have you heard Trump, the businessman, say, um, you know, we could probably accomplish the same strategic goals with a vastly smaller military budget if we spent it more smartly. And, uh, I think what's happening now is, and this gets to what Ed noted about the the reduced military support, I think only slightly reduced for President Trump, um, that it's emerging that A, he has no strategy, B, he has no commitment or respect for the troops. Uh, if the Atlantic story stood alone, it might have been forgotten, but of course it echoes so many things he said before and not just about John McCain. And um, thirdly, I think they've come to recognize that over time, merely applying more money to the military has not necessarily done what needs to be done for the military now. And um, I think that's the opportunity that Biden has. Now, whether Biden can leap on it, I don't know. I was somewhat impressed by how quickly they did leap upon the Atlantic story. Um, but, but that would then require, I think, for Biden to then step out and explain his theory of how he would use the military as well. It does lead, Ed, to this kind of strange 
and, and, and I mean really strange moment where Trump, because of his lies, is backed into, you know, a moment of kind of truth about the military industrial complex. <laughs> which, 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 um, which was mind blowing. I'm Donald Trump pacifist. It's a beautiful thing to see. <laughs> right. But, but, you know, all of a sudden in the past three days, we've seen clips of Eisenhower over and over giving this important, really revolutionary speech, right? You know, here is Eisenhower, the former Supreme Allied commander, the president at the end of his days of being president saying that this is a blight on America and saying every time you buy a tank, you're taking food out of the mouths of the hungry. Um, and that this, there is this big mass within society that we have to contend with. And all of a sudden, Trump is embracing it. And then, and I mean, to have to say both of these things in the same sentence makes me, you know, throw up a little in my mouth. Glenn Greenwald hops onto the, you know, hops onto the, Yay, Trump, yay, Eisenhower, anti-military industrial complex train. Um, and you think, holy mackerel, this world is upside down. But it does raise a question. I think a question that David is right to frame, and that is, will the Democrats be any different? Because no U.S. administration has really looked hard and fast at the, at the, at the budget you know, from a real zero-based basis or with the idea to real efficiency, Biden, you know, might have a moment to do that. But, the, you know, there doesn't seem to be anything in his past that suggests that he will. What do you think? I very much doubt it. Um, look, I think the people around Biden um, are all very experienced, decent, public service-oriented um, uh, veterans of Washington, D.C. in the past administrations, Obama administration, Clinton administration, and knowing Biden, there'll probably be one or two ex-Bush ex administrations or Republicans of some sort in, in, um, in, in his administration. There'll be, there'll be an equivalent of um, Bob Gates. There'll be somebody like Mitt Romney in there. Um, I, I, I think that Biden's instincts... Um, to the extent that they are radical as opposed to restorative, um, will be far more on the domestic front in, in terms of racial justice or criminal justice reform, um, in terms of having stronger economic protections for Americans than they will do um, for um, the future of the Pentagon. I just cannot see it such a tooth-pulling exercise in which you alienate everybody, starting with the defense industrial complex, but also, you know, with three quarters of Congress who have the manufacturing of um, various sort of parts of the military machine in their districts and in their states, um, that to go through, you know, a John McCain fantasy of streamlining the Pentagon and making it an efficient, um, pr uh, uh, transparent procurement operation that's um, oriented to the wars of the future and the threats of the future rather than um, all the legacy um, um, systems that, that, that now weigh it down is such a huge endeavor. Um, and it, it's, it's so difficult to put off that I doubt that Biden would take one look at it and think this is where I want to spend my political capital. His instinct is that Trump's his instinct remains, in spite of what we've heard from him in the last few months, that Trump is an aberration, 
and that he is a restoration. And restoration means, um, I, I think, continuity um, in terms of the military, military industrial data intelligence complex. Hmm. Um, that's an interesting twist Ed added there at the end there, Rosa, when he added data and the world of tech into this, this complex. Uh, although, again, at the end of the Obama administration, you had Ash Carter and others going out and trying to make more of that. But isn't it completely unrealistic to think that you can fix what's broke in the United States and not change dramatically the way that you deal with military budgets? Well, can I weigh in on that one when Rose is done? <laughs> yes. Well, I mean, I actually disagree a bit with Ed on this one. Um, I, I mean, obviously, who knows, and who knows what's going to happen with the election, and who knows what American politics are going to look like in January. Um, but I, well, I, I, I got to say, by the way, parenthetically, that you, Rosa Brooks, have scared the shit out of America, and I can't open a newspaper <laughs> or click on an internet site where there isn't somebody saying Rosa Brooks says it's all going to go to hell in a handbasket. Well, oh my I, God, hide under your desk. And you know, Rosa Brooks is doing that. a great public <laughs> service by encouraging all of us to think our way through bad potential outcomes and think about how to build in buffers and early actions to prevent it spiraling out of control. So thank you, Rosa. Well, thank you, Corey. I, I should mention, Rosa, if you haven't seen it, Michael Anton um, wrote a piece a couple of days ago citing you that the Democrats are now openly proclaiming that they are planning a coup. And he, he links his first pick oh. into your piece. I so know. That, that's Thank how you your know. material is being spun into. Right. You should see my inbox. You should see my inbox. Um, it's pretty scary. Um, lots of people planning to hang me for treason, et cetera, et cetera. Um, we um, won't let them. Thank you. We have many. There is an army out here of the deep state radio army, and we will protect all of you who are doing this good work. Anyways, sorry to interrupt. No, no, thank you. I mean, and and Ed Ed and Corey both at different points uh, helped shape the Transition Integrity Project. So thank you all. I mean, um, basically just trying to share my thorny crown of entropy with the rest of the country. um, but actually, I, one, one small point I will make on that before I go back to your military budget question, David, um, it's, it's, it's the degree of projection and the far right response to that is kind of amazing. You know, we sort of say we're really worried about right wing violence and they say, aha, you're planning a coup. Um, kind of mind blowing. I think the other criticism that's been, been leveled at us is, well, you had all these people who are critical of Trump playing Trump. So, of course, they imagine Trump doing bad things. Which is totally misses the point, right? That you do exercises like this, not because you're trying to predict what Trump will do, but because you're trying to figure out how prepared the nation and its institutions are to deal with Trump doing bad things that he might do, uh, to which the answer in our exercises was not nearly as prepared as we would like. Um, But you don't do gaming exercises in order to play out best case scenarios. That would be pointless. Um, you do it to figure out, you know, are we, are we prepared for worst case scenarios? And I think we're not. That being said, if we survive, uh, and, if, and if, as I hope, our worst case scenarios do not come to pass because we all take action to prevent them in a timely fashion, um, I actually think there's, there may be more appetite uh, on the Biden team than Ed thinks to 
make some real shifts in defense investments, not necessarily reducing the budget in a dramatic way. Um, but but I think, you know, it, it obviously personnel is policy. It depends who the who the Secretary of Defense is, who the service chiefs are, uh, et cetera, et cetera. But I certainly think that, you know, if you think of people like Michelle Flournoy, who clearly remains pretty close to the to the Biden team, uh, Cap Hicks, um, other other folks like that, and look at what they have been publishing, you know, they clearly get how dangerous it is for the country to sort of stay on the glide path it's been on in terms of where we invest our where we invest our defense dollars. Um, and clearly get that a pretty radical recalibration that would require a lot of political capital from the president himself is needed very urgently. Um, again, you know, do other things get in the way? Um, maybe they do. Uh, you know, often they do. But but I think that this is actually a moment when the domestic agenda really intersects with defense budget issues. That precisely the things that Biden wants to do. Um, according to the the policies and stuff he's put out there uh, so far on the domestic side, like job creation programs, potentially create an opportunity to be more creative in terms of defense recalibration and different types of investments. You know, that that it's very hard to say to Congress, you know, oh, gee, you know, we should cut X or Y if 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 that feels like a zero sum game to them for and for their constituents. On the other hand, if you're able to say, hey, we need to cut X and Y, but that's going to, we're going to also have a program in which we're investing in this in Z, which is going to enable people to shift over there. And that's going to be good for your constituents. It's actually an easier sell. So in a, in a, funny, in a funny way, I actually think the depth of the domestic economic crisis is precisely what creates some real, both, both some pressures and some real opportunities for much more meaningful defense budget changes than we've had in the past. Corey. Can I argue briefly with Rosa? Well, you, you can, but not Corey, that I'd ever want to. I'm very, very fragile right now, David. Please don't argue with me. I, 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 I understand that, and and I, I'm hoping that this argument would not, uh, like, lead me to be barred barred from your um, uh, from from the bunker. Although, considering the number of people who seem to want to storm your bunker now, Ed and I are actually thinking of going off and digging our. <laughs> her own bunker someplace else. <laughs> and then Corey can decide which one she wants to come visit, right? Um, Corey in the um, first line of defense in front of Rosa. In front of Rosa. There Sorry, we go. So, but, um, okay, one of the, brief, one, briefly, David, briefly. Very briefly. Corey. One of the difficulties in, do, in doing this for the constituents is that the kinds of weaponry that we're thinking about cutting are things that are made in states that involve bending a lot of metal and, you know, aircraft and all that. And what we're thinking of building are mostly high tech and cyber and all that. And they're not as big job creators, particularly for people, the kind of people who were working on traditional military activity. And I think that's part of what's made it so difficult. I now yield the floor to, to Corey. So three things. First, Four and a half percent of GDP for defense spending is historically low for the post-war United States. Um, so uh, it's not like defense spending is a great big anomaly that really needs to be hacked down. Second thing is the nature of the threats we are facing don't argue for strong cuts to defense spending. We're doing a big study at AEI looking at uh, different strategies for arbitrary top lines in the defense budget. 
And the first one we're looking at is what would it take to get to a $500 billion a year defense budget? Um, and because of the very things John McCain railed about, about the inflexibility of a lot of the laws Congress imposes on defense procurement, um, you, you can really decimate the American military and you still don't get to $500 billion a year. So the important work that needs to be done isn't on the level of defense spending, it's on the fungibility and flexibility. And that's why, to, to my third point, that's why uh, the president and the Defense Department moving money that Congress did not authorize or appropriate for building the border wall is so damaging to the trust you need to have to make these kind of arrangements. And the last point I will make is, if you really want to make a big difference on the debt, you can't do much without getting after entitlements. Those are actually what is crowding out all of the important discretionary spending, domestic, defense, and foreign policy. And that's the problem that I would love to see an administration solve because we don't need to solve it in the next two years, putting the country on a path to better spending and acknowledging the need for significant fiscal stimulus in the near term is a much better approach to that problem. Ed? You briefly uh, worked uh, writing speeches and things in the Treasury Department, and I can only imagine what the Treasury Department response is um, or would be to what Corey has just said and, you know, might be something in the lines of, well, percentage of GDP isn't what's important. It's percentage of discretionary spending gets to her point about, about um, uh, entitlements, but just from the point of view of economic health, is this discussion completely moot because it's not going to happen, or is it relevant? And and in, a, in just a minute or two, because we're going to have to wrap it up here. If you look at um, um, non-defense domestic discretionary spending, that's been, as a share of the overall budget, the fastest shrinking um, uh, over the over the past few years, as Corey says, entitlements take up a lot, debt interest takes up a lot, and um, defence takes up um, a, a lot. So, spending on what I call tomorrow items keeps getting cut, uh, and that's infrastructure, that's skills, that's investment in young people, um, and spending on outdated legacy systems, whether it be you know the way that social security is organised in this country or indeed the way the Pentagon procures its weapons, has been eating up a, a greater and greater share of the budget. This is, a, 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 this is how a grand company winds itself down and pays ever sort of diminishing but regular dividends to its shareholders. It's not how a dynamic company behaves. Look at the budget. That will tell you all you need to know about America's priorities, and its priorities are hooked to yesterday. Um, I do think very, I do feel quite strongly that also applies to how defense spending is um, conducted. And that's not, a, 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 um, that's, that's not um, a comment on the level of defense spending. That's a comment on the um, uh, breakdown and patterns and the nature of how it's, how it's allocated. Well, I think we got to come back to this in the future. If I can leave everybody with a thought here, I, I, I think it might be helpful for the United States to think not so much in terms of defense spending as in terms of national security spending. 
and recognize that, you know, things that are vital to our national security, as we have recently discovered, are ensuring that we can respond to a pandemic, that we've got healthcare in place, ensuring that we have people to develop the technologies that we need in the future, and that we've got the educational systems, or as Eisenhower observed, to bring him back into the picture, building highways and other kinds of things that create different kinds of security. If we looked at the totality of national security spending in that way, we might rethink how we approach some of these other things. And, and we saw defense only as a subset of national security. In any event, um, uh, we have run out of time. Uh, fortunately, we will be back. We will be back frequently each week. Uh, we will be back with this great crew next Monday, as we usually are. Um, and I hope that you follow all the good things that they are doing in the interim, what they are writing, where they are appearing, uh, because these are important discussions and they are in the middle of them. So for now, thank you, Corey Shockey. Thank you, Rosa Brooks. Thank you, Edward Luce. Thank you, David Sanger. And thank you to everybody out there in Deep State Radio Land for listening and for more about what we're doing, go to the dsrnetwork.com and uh, uh, take, take, take a look at our schedule. Uh, become a member, help support what we're doing. Thanks very much, everybody. Bye-bye.